0: CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: Thank you all for being here for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, Tomorrow at noon... We are going to witness one of the most majestic rituals of our American democracy, the peaceful transfer of power from one president uh, to the next. Uh, It's interesting to use the word peaceful in the context of what we've seen happening uh, in the last couple of months since the election with Donald Trump repeatedly calling the election a fraud, Uh, with members of Congress supporting his contention that Joe Biden uh, illegally won the presidency, um, with the violence that took place uh, in the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And yet, all of that, plus the pandemic, plus economic uncertainty, uh, the fact of the matter is that what we expect to see tomorrow is a peaceful transition of power and that in, of, in and of itself is a remarkable uh, thing to contemplate. Um, as I said in the very introduction to the show, we've seen transitions that have taken place under troubling times in American history in the past. And uh, to put tomorrow into some context, we want to talk about what's happened previously in the United States in some of the most interesting transitions of power. And to do that, we have a terrific panel for you today today. Of course, it's Tuesday, which means that my partner, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is here. tomorrow. welcome to the show. It's a chance for me to say on the air thanks for taking my place at the last minute last week. I was very glad that you could step in while I was getting my, my vaccine, and, uh, and our listeners were thrilled to have you here. How are you today?
0: Not too bad. Excited to be talking about inaugurations. I I always love going, and and this one um, will be a different one, but I'm pumped to put it into historical context.
1: Yeah, I I think we will do that. You and I have both been to many inaugurations, and maybe we'll get a chance to talk a little bit bit about uh, our experiences at some point during the show. Uh, We're also joined by our friend, Dr. Joe Crispino. Professor of History, the History Chair at Emory University. Joe, thank you for being here as well today. It's great to be with you, Bill, always. Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, And Dr. Frederick Knight, Professor of History at Morehouse College, is back with us. Um, Thank you for being here. Uh, So let me ask you a quick question, Fred. Is this the kind of day that someone who uh, teaches history, American history, uh, tomorrow looks forward to with uh, anticipation, enthusiasm? Is it kind of, you know, election days are Christmas days for political reporters. I wonder if days like inauguration days are the same if you're teaching American history.
2: <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely. There's just a lot of entry points for you to begin conversations with students uh, about history and the relationship between the past and the present. So absolutely, they'll.
1: Well, I we'll, uh, have a lot to talk about with you today as well. And uh, we're also joined by Dr. Michelle Bratton, Professor of History at Georgia State University. Thank you, Michelle, for joining us. Um, you'll be glued to your TV tomorrow to watch the inauguration?
3: Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I will be watching, and online teaching this semester will allow me to do it in peace.
1: <laughs> okay, good for you. Um I want to, to start—we're um, going to go back in American history uh, in a couple of minutes— but but before I go uh, uh, way back, uh, let me start with the conditions in the Capitol today and relate those to a past incident in our country. So we know there are some 25,000 uh, National Guard troops stationed in on the streets of Washington to protect president-elect, uh, to protect the Capitol again, all the members of Congress who will be there. Um, and, and it's a, a little daunting to think about the fact that there are more U.S. troops in the capital than we have in Afghanistan or Iraq right now. But it occurred to me that when Abraham Lincoln was heading to Washington to be sworn in in 1861, he traveled— under uh, heavy security, not hundreds and thousands of troops protecting him, but he had to sneak in by train uh, to uh, get to Washington, and he uh, did it in the dead of night. He was essentially in disguise, and um, I I read online that the Ford's Museum has a pair of brass knuckles, a knife, and a pair of artillery goggles that his personal security man— Carried with him because they were so concerned that Southern sympathizers were going to assassinate Lincoln before he could be sworn in. Fascinating story.
0: Yeah, no kidding. And apparently they they had they they understood that there was a credible assassination threat in Baltimore, um, which was a stop that he needed to make on his way down. You know, Lincoln had taken a northern route through a lot of states because he knew that he wasn't welcome in the South at the time, but of course, Maryland was below the Mason-Dixon line, and there were plenty of people who, who did not want to see him sworn in as president. And at the time in Baltimore, I guess the, the two train lines didn't connect. So he had to make like a 45 minute walk between two train stations in Baltimore. And, and they knew that that was gonna be a really dangerous stretch. So they, uh, they, they had him arrive at something like two or three in the morning and kind of rushed him through under the, the cloak of night so that uh, no one would know that he was there. Um, and they managed to sneak them through in, in time.
1: So, Joe Crispino, um, w- we have seen presidents who's un- whose unpopularity has led to threats of assassination. And certainly in 19- 1861, with the nation about to fall apart completely, uh, Lincoln was a target.
4: Yeah, and, and the sad irony of that story that Tamar just related was that Lincoln of course was ultimately assassinated by a Southern uh, apologist, you know, and so it, yeah. it just five years later. So it's a, it's, it's, it's so strange today to see our, our capital under siege and being protected. Uh, you know, it's something we've never seen before, but it is, you know, important to remember that, um, uh, that transition of 1860, 18, early, you know, March, 1861 was, uh, was certainly um, every
1: bit as thought <laughs> and as, um, as difficult as this one. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more in a couple minutes about that transition. But, um, but, but let me ask you, Fred, let me start with you, and then Michelle, please weigh in on this. Uh, uh, President Trump, as of noon tomorrow, will begin his march into the pages of history uh, you know, there's yes, he will still be a force politically, we think. Um, nevertheless, his administration will have come to an end. His four years in office uh, will have closed. And now it will be historians like yourselves, all of you, who will begin to assess where he fits in to our history. You'll begin that process. Your successors, the younger people coming up in your business, will begin to look at that process. Um, that's a fascinating thing to consider. Then a matter of a few minutes, you march from the White House into the pages of history, Fred.
2: Yeah, it, it is fascinating. And uh, we'll see how that narrative, who, who controls that narrative and how it plays out. Um, over, over winter break, I read uh, Barack Obama, The Promised Land. You see um, him, him, in some ways, talking about his experience. And I'll simultaneously, you see him also shaping a narrative about his presidency. And so that's what uh, we'll see as we, re- as we assess Trump's presidency, what narrative emerges in the immediate aftermath of his presidency and then over time, as more information comes out about his administration and we see the long term consequences of it, uh, there'll be a continued ongoing assessments of it.
1: Michelle?
3: Um, yeah, i I'm sitting here thinking, it's it's still so fresh. Um I I know I'm careful when I talk to my students about it. I think that feelings are still very high. But there are some things that we'll have to say. I mean, there are a lot of firsts with this president. I mean the first to be impeached twice. Um and uh I I think, um, well, I I think that we'll have to be a little bit careful. I mean, the other first, I think, is that um, although there have been disputes about elections before, this has been perhaps the nastiest one. Um, I know in in 1960, when um, Kennedy and Nixon were running against each other, um, there were some disputes about the vote at that time. And, in fact, some of Nixon's supporters felt that the election had been stolen from them and started a committee to look into it. Um, But at the time, although Nixon... Believed him um, and was a bit of a sore loser too. He thought it was in the good of the it was in the country's best interest to step down peacefully, allow the transition to take place. Um, so, uh, President Trump's decision not to allow that to happen um, it is going to be a really important historic
1: first. So let's go back now uh, in history. And, and Joe, before we talk about um, the, some of the most fractious transitions. Let's go back to the one that uh, people have been talking about a lot. Anybody who saw Hamilton, the musical, will be familiar with it. Uh, And that was the first uh, transition of power between two different parties. Uh, When John Adams, who fought an incredibly, incredibly Uh, aggressive uh, campaign against Thomas Jefferson when they were really at each other. uh, Jefferson won that election. And uh, for all of the animosity between them, the world was kind of shocked when John Adams stepped aside and handed the reins of power over to Thomas Jefferson, right? It
4: it was shocking. And um, Lin-Manuel Miranda captures that wonderfully in Hamilton when the the King of England you know says i don't I didn't realize someone could walk away from power. you know yeah. <laughs> that, that great line that he captured. but it's true that the idea that you would have a, a transition of power, but not just any transition of power, but a transition between rival parties, and of course, the founding fathers had not imagined that factionalism and that parties would imagine would 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 grow so quickly too in American politics, and it was a bitter, bitter campaign. Between um, between the Republicans and between the Federalists, and and uh, Adams left. He left early in the morning. He did not stay for his successor's inaugural. And it was very is a very contentious transition. And famously, Adams um, and the and the Federalists controlled Congress made a number of, of kind of lame duck uh, decisions, including the appointment of judges um, that were very controversial. They came to be known as the midnight judges. Uh, to try to get the you know, cement their power within the government as they handed over to Jefferson. But the mere fact that it was happening was a world historical event, um, because of the way that, that the United States was able to successfully make that that that, that transition of power.
1: Um, I think I'm right. Fred, maybe you can, Michelle or tomorrow one of you jump in on this if you want. I think, you know, we've been talking about uh, in, in, in the news in the last uh, week or so, the fact that uh, uh, Donald Trump will not attend Joe Biden's uh, swearing in. Not only will he not attend it, he has extended none of the courtesies that traditionally a, a, a president and a first lady uh, give to the incoming president and first lady. Uh, but he is not alone. As uh, Joe just pointed out, John Adams did not attend. He left town quickly, the way Trump is going to do tomorrow morning. Uh, he did not attend Thomas Jefferson's uh, inauguration. Uh, Fred, John Quincy Adams, his son, did not attend. Is it Andrew Jackson who followed him in the line of succession? And John Quincy did not attend uh, his uh, successor's inauguration. And oh, Ulysses Grant, See the third one who didn't attend? Andrew a, Johnson. Andrew Johnson didn't attend his. Thanks. Andrew Johnson did not attend Ulysses Grant's. Uh, okay, so Fred, this is not an uncommon, this has happened in history uh, three other times. Uh, Trump's not alone, Fred.
2: Yeah, but if we think about the frequency, um, frequency actually, uh, this is a 19th century phenomenon. And so we skipped a whole century and, uh, and then a couple of decades, and now we see it again. And so this, is, um, this tells us that a particular norm uh, had been established over the course of a century plus, uh, over a century and a half of American history. And this is just another one of those norms that the Trump administration ha- has broken.
1: Um, okay, so let's go ahead and start talking about other transitions that were particularly fraught. And, and one of the most uh, fraught of them all, I think it's fair to say, uh, was um, the transition of James Buchanan to Abraham Lincoln. Um, Michelle, let me start with you on this. Uh, the, the transition was made difficult. It, Buchanan had, had uh, vowed that he would only serve one term as president. And uh, so uh, Lincoln came in. He did not run against Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln came in as the country was beginning to come unglued, as, as the uh, seeds of the Civil War were beginning to bear fruit. And because the, uh, because the swearing in, the inauguration of a president had been set in stone in the Constitution as taking place on March 4th of the following year, there were these months during which Buchanan was a lame duck uh, president and uh, Lincoln had no power at all. And what happened during that period of time to exacerbate what Lincoln was going to face when he came into office, Michelle?
3: Well, Buchanan um, was sympathetic to the South um, and, and he had been friendly to Confederates. Um, And so when, when, basically the crisis began to erupt. He didn't, he didn't act. Um, he said that he had no right to do anything about South Carolina, which had, at this time had, had seceded, um, and that he had no right to um, intervene when Southern forces took over uh, Union garrisons and forts in the South. Um, and he also blundered by sending in a resupply ship to Fort Sumter, which was then later interpreted as a hostile act by southerners, and probably led to the secession of six more states so By the time Lincoln came in, seven states had seceded, and Buchanan had really done nothing um, i mean and and Lincoln at that time and we Biden has been a presence throughout this entire transition. But Lincoln was in Illinois, and there wasn't Twitter or TV um, or radio. The Telegraph was new, and so he was kind of cut off um, and unable to really enact anything until he was snuck into Washington in 1861.
4: Joe? Yeah, and, the, uh, and Michelle recounted that very well. I mean, the other thing about um, – and this is true for all presidents is before you actually take the office, you don't want to be seen as meddling. Um, and so Lincoln, you know, during that long uh, lame duck period, you know, would refer reporters back to statements he had made, you know on the campaign, but he uh, but he was in Illinois and he was not in Washington. Uh, and so much was happening on the ground, the secession of seven southern states and And it's part of the reason and we have to read Lincoln's early Statements about secession in the war in that context—that um, it wasn't inevitable that the South would secede. You know, it had been the firebrand Deep South states, South Carolina, Mississippi, that went first, and Lincoln was doing everything that he could to try to ensure other slaveholding states that they could maintain, you know, control of their of their slaves. Uh, but as a Republican. He was committed, and it was the Republican Party's key key position, that there wouldn't be the expansion of slavery into the West. And that had become the thing that had led to the formation of the Republican Party. So Lincoln, of course, was in an impossible position, but one that had made, been made all the more difficult by the kind of bungling uh, way in which Buchanan had handled it, never taking really seriously the prospect that the, that the nation could be— divided
1: uh, by, by civil war. You know, Tomorrow, that, that uh, was one of the first examples. We're going to talk about another uh, example, very dramatic example, of what happened when when the founding fathers had set the inaugural date for so many months after the actual election. And tomorrow, we know they did that uh, initially because it took a long time to get from one place to another, and so there was a concern about how quickly a a new president could get to the Capitol to be sworn in. But that delay, it's hard for us to imagine today, tomorrow, can we imagine what that would be like if we were dealing with Donald Trump and all he has done to uh, try to deny the reality of this election, and we still had until March 4th before the transition took place?
0: And I think even before Trump, there were a lot of people, especially if you just won an election and you're so excited to implement your agenda and you, you hate the way that the predecessor had been doing things, you know, the that period between early November and January 20th feels very, very long already. Of course, there are staffing decisions that have to be made and, um, you know, all sorts of um, little details that have to be worked out. But, yeah, at the you know, think about it. Back... 200 years ago, it took forever to travel. You know, the telegram didn't come around until, you know, a while later. And so information traveled very slowly. And so it just took you a lot longer to be able to do things. But that, Fred, that changed in the 30s, I, I believe. It was the, the mid 30s when they, they finally moved it up to January 20th. 19, Fred,
1: 1933, I think yeah. was when the 25th yeah, so Amendment was passed.
2: Yeah, with the 20th Amendment that was ratified in 1933 that shortened that period between the election and, and the ultimate uh, inauguration of the next president, as well as the um, uh, convening of the first session of the next session of the U.S. Congress. Um, and, and so that lame duck period we, we've seen has um, been compressed um, because of changes in technologies and realized that there were certain exigencies that occurred in between presidencies that needed to be attended to.
1: Um, 20th Amendment, thank you for correcting me. Um, So, Fred, as long as you got the ball, I want to talk about the transition is a, uh, in a way, the wrong word to use, uh, but the assassination of President uh, Lincoln, which led to the presidency of Andrew Johnson, uh, there was a transfer of power, obviously. And um, it does strike me that, uh, again, although it was not the same kind of uh, peaceful transition That The change in the approach that those two men had taken and wanted to take to the south in the aftermath of the Civil War was so stark That had Lincoln lived we might have found ourselves in an entirely different uh, country in terms of uh, of of the south as a For many many decades a kind of an isolated part of the country Jim Crow laws all of the awful uh, past history of this region uh, Lincoln had plans to do things much differently than Andrew Johnson, yes?
2: Yeah, that's true. And so that, that was a faithful transition uh, between Lincoln and Andrew Johnson um, in 1865. Um, and, and the key was, what's going, how, is this, how are the Confederate states going to be reintegrated into the United States? On what terms would they be reintegrated in? And Johnson, certainly, he, he talked— a really tough game saying that essentially that the you know, highest ranking Confederate uh, officials would need to get pardon from him and, and that they wouldn't be barred from holding office and the like. Um, but in practice, you saw almost in, in immediate aftermath of the Civil War, uh, ex-Confederates taking political power, race riots in Memphis in 1866, in New Orleans in 1866. And pretty much uh, a, a rise of power, a rise into power of, of people who had, had caused, uh, caused that war. Um, and so that was, uh, one could really speculate as to what, how history would have unfolded differently had, had um, Lincoln's life been preserved and, and been able to handle the first three years of Reconstruction. Um, one, one could argue that things would have unfolded much differently than they did.
1: Uh, Joe, Andrew Johnson himself was a slaveholder, um, and and yet he apparently was not in a position— he didn't feel a need to punish the South. So how did he—what was different between what Lincoln had planned and what Andrew Johnson had, had executed?
4: Well, a lot of the differences between— uh and we don't know what what Lincoln's policies would have been right i mean it's all we can we can speculate but a lot of it comes down to just to character a lot of leadership is about character and johnson was um a person of of not particularly stellar character i mean even even his inauguration as um uh, as vice president he showed up drunk to his speech and gave a bungling speech and and Lincoln afterwards was kind of shaking his hand head saying maybe Andy will have learned from that experience, you know, hoping for the best. But Lincoln had appointed him as a way of trying to balance the ticket, of trying to to broaden his coalition as much as possible. But Johnson, you know, wasn't up uh, wasn't up to the task, and Johnson didn't have the kinds of connections with the Republican, more what was known at the time as the radical Republican wing of the party. That that's not the wing of the party that, that Lincoln himself came from. But Lincoln, as a long-term Republican, had relationships with that wing of the party and would have been able to, one suspects, better negotiate the, the you know how, how quickly the situations were, was changing on the ground in the South in 1866, '67 and '68, and come up. And of course, having been a wartime president, you know, having himself changed his position over the course of the war. You know, having a policy at the beginning of the war to preserve the Union to, by the end of the war, by the, the time he issues the Emancipation Proclamation, it becomes a war to eradicate slavery and to transform the South. Having lived through that transition, having, having lived through that fire, one suspects Lincoln would have been much better positioned to deal with the many exigencies he had to have to deal with during the tumultuous Reconstruction period. So it really was... It's, it's Fred said, a very a fateful, fateful event in the nation's history when he was assassinated.
1: Yeah, I don't want to get into the weeds too much on this, but it is true that Andrew Johnson supported and oversaw the ratification of the 13th Amendment, which outlawed slavery formally. Um, but he also gave a lot of power, Michelle, to the states themselves to decide how they would govern themselves as they attempted to get back into the union. And uh, there are some feelings that because of his unwillingness to uh, uh, deal with the states in more disciplined ways, that, uh, that the black codes, which restricted African-American rights uh, proliferated in the South. Yeah. I mean, that, that was
3: a, what caused a lot of tension between him and the radical Republicans? Um, basically, he, he granted amnesty to former Confederates and allowed them to elect new governments, who um, quickly basically turned back everything um, that the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment um, would have given free people, um, and introduced the Black Codes, which um, many people see as kind of you know a precursor to segregation, um, that that sought to really take freedom in its real sense away from free people. Fred?
2: Uh, yeah, I'd also like to add, Johnson, also uh, overturned uh, William Tecumseh Sherman's order to set aside 40 acres um, of, of land for freedmen, as well as to give them access to work animals. Um, and, and there's some debate as to whether that was actual full title or was actually a freehold title to, to land, as it was called. But that was a a very important um, decision that Andrew Johnson made when he was in in power that had long-range consequences as well. So the political um, consequences that happened at the state level uh, with the return of ex-Confederates, as well as this question related to land, um, that was also significant.
1: Uh, we got to get to a break. Uh, It occurs to me as we're talking uh, that uh, This is what occurs to me. Uh, you, you know, it's become uh, popular co- uh, parlance to say elections have consequences, and of course they do. I'm thinking as we uh, continue our conversation, transitions have consequences as well. And we're going to keep talking about them when we come back from this break.
4: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind.
1: We're joined today by three outstanding professors of history, uh, Professor Joe Crespino, Professor Michelle Bratton, and Professor Frederick Knight, talking about the transitions in American history that uh, kind of we put in the context of what's happening with the Trump to uh, Biden transition tomorrow and of course we're joined by tamar hellerman senior reporter at the ajc real Tamar, before we go look at another one of the big ones and that would be herbert hoover to fdr uh you've been you covered uh, i think you've been at the um obama at least one obama uh inauguration that you had to cover uh what else you've been to more than one
0: I went to Obama's first one as a curaige college student and froze my butt off in the one of the coldest inaugurations ever. Um, and then I, um, and then I covered Donald Trump's in twenty seventeen for the AJC. Um
1: oh, you were there for the biggest crowd in the history of, of yes, inauguration.
0: Yes, especially after covering <laughs> Obama, yes. Um, but but I just want to comment before we kind of step back into the historical discussion of just the scene in Washington right now and just how unusual it is. Um, there are tanks in the streets. There are seven-foot-high fences with barbed wires around the Capitol. There is a militarized green zone in downtown Washington and more than 20,000 National Guard troops sleeping in the Capitol. There are cots everywhere. This is like nothing I had ever thought I could ever see Um in the, in the Capitol, and it's kind of a sad testament to where we are right now. Um, they're, they're closing the National Mall to visitors. Of course, some of this has to do with COVID and uh, keeping people socially distanced, but also a lot of this has to do with the insurrection that happened at the Capitol on the 6th. And it just shows what an extraordinary time we live in now. Um, and hopefully it'll be a smooth inauguration and a peaceful one.
1: Um, thank you for uh bringing that up. I've been watching it, and you, of course, lived in Washington. I covered Washington extensively during my reporting career, and so when I see what you see in the streets, it it is is a very, very chilling uh, time there, and so sad to see this is what's become of our nation's uh, capital. Michelle, speaking of that, um, this is going to be a moment in history that students like the ones who will follow your students will be talking about studying. You may teach it years down the road.
3: Yeah, I I think... I mean, it's interesting. I did, people remarked at the time that Lincoln, for example, required the same kind of security. I mean, n- nothing compared to what we're seeing today. Um, but there were cavalry in the street. There were people patrolling intersections. There were sharpshooters um, stationed around the Capitol because there were still Confederates in in Washington D.C. And so people were worried about Lincoln's safety. So, but but I think you know we can understand. Our students can understand the Civil War is this time of incredible um, division and conflict. I mean, it erupted into a war, right? Um, and, and, and yet the security in the Capitol is not the same as it is now. Um, and so it's, it's interesting. I think, I think those comparisons will be interesting to highlight the kind of division that we're seeing in the country right now, which is genuinely historic.
4: No, Bill, I just want to add in that, too. I mean, I think one of the things that's difficult about thinking about how to teach the history of this uh, transition and this inauguration is that we're still, I mean, it's still yet to be determined whether Donald Trump will be convicted and removed from office, right? And it's still yet to be determined who will replace or what will happen to Trumpism within the Republican Party. Because when you think about the legacy of the Trump presidency, that's it's still, you know, it's still yet to be written. What, what is the legacy of this administration and the nature of this transition? So, you know, there's so much that we're still living through uh, that we don't, we don't, we can't even yet begin to imagine how to teach this moment until other things are yet to be determined.
0: I have a question that I want to ask the panel of historians, and it's kind of a dumb one, but I'm so curious about it. At what point do current events become history? And at what moment, you know, Fred was talking about reading Obama's book, right? And, And him trying to shape this narrative. Can you talk about how these narratives get shaped and when historians kind of get to a consensus? Because I know, obviously, I have a role as a reporter writing that first draft. But when do we kind of, when do I pass the ball to you, and when does it become sort of settled history in the eyes of, of historians like you guys? It,
2: it, 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 Actually, there's an interesting book um, by anthropologist Michelle Ruffieux. Talk, he talks about the presence of the past, and his argument is really history is shaped at the moment at which it's created. And so there's actually a gap between the the event and what happens with the journalist pen. There's a gap between the event and what happens when somebody writes something in a diary. So there's a, there's a bit of a gap there. And so there's an ongoing process of a creation of an archive. In the moment that a, a newspaper article is written, the, uh, the diary is published, uh, is, is, uh, entry is written. And uh, I... Twenty years. I don't. I don't know what would gives us a fair amount of time to give us ourselves a, a sense of detachment that allows us to assess things uh, that happened in the past. And I, I think I'll defer here to Joe. Well, well no, I was uh, just uh, going to weigh had. in.
4: For, <laughs> I mean, but I do write more recent history than you do. But I actually taught a class, uh, a graduate course, this past semester on writing the recent past. And tomorrow, this is one of the things that we talk about. I mean, you go back to one of the first works of, of history, Thucydides, is, you know, history of the Peloponnesian War. Well, he lived through the Peloponnesian War. I mean, I mean in some ways, he was blend, blending the line between the journalist and historian. And so there isn't any kind of, you know, clear red delineation between, red marker between, you know, when journalism starts and when history ends. And of course, some journalists are wonderful historians and Historians have to play the role of journalists sometimes, so so we're very much in a, a kind of you know a kinship kind of profession, I think, to more uh, me historians and you, particularly historians of the more recent past. So it's 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 a it's not a clear line.
3: Yeah, it's, it's this week um, I'm teaching a class on the history of the '60s and had an opportunity to talk about um, Martin Luther King Jr. because it, it just falls at the beginning of the semester, um, and I think. So that's an interesting story that gives some kind of insight, I think, in, into the kinds of things that friends are talking about. Because um, there is a wonderful record of King written by journalists. I mean, extraordinary record. Um, but we've learned so much more about him from papers and letters and diaries and interviews. And and so while that that first picture we got is really important and and true. Um, it, it takes time, I think, to fill in some of the context and understand a little bit more about what was happening behind the scenes. And I think that's going to be the big surprise for students of history in the future about Trump. I mean, I keep thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm fantasizing about directing graduate students' dissertations about the Trump presidency someday. And that would be my question to them. It's like we, we have, I mean, we've seen all the shenanigans publicly. What was going on behind the scenes? That's going to be the big question. How do you get inside Trump's head and figure out what's going on?
0: And another question for the panel is just, I guess, history is going to change so much just because of the internet and email and text messages. There's just such more of a sheer amount of records to be kept. Um, and, and how does that change what you guys do? Ted Fre- or Fred talked about this you know having some detachment and being able to kind of soak in everything that happened but there's there's just a sheer amount of information now that we didn't have even in the 60s or or hundreds of years how does that shift the way that you understand current figures maybe your work is never done if you have every email somebody has ever sent every text message maybe it becomes impossible to learn all the context of a person
4: well I, I, it is a major problem for historians of the twentieth century. i mean it's, it's a it's a good problem. I mean, you know medieval historians I mean, like you know I to have that problem. They're dealing from like two texts you know that, that have been read by generations upon generations of historians but but um but it is a problem all the same to to be able to mine all of the information and and those kinds of things. I think it's like anything though you weed through it and some things, you know, A lot of emails aren't important, (laughs) as we learned from the the Hillary Clinton email, quote-unquote, scandal, right? I mean, a lot of emails are not important, and there are still—the job of the historian remains to find the key turning points, the key break points, to tell a narrative about change over time and what is critical and kind of gleaning uh, from the past. So it it, it does pose new challenges, I think that the enterprise is the same.
1: So— I love those questions, and it's fascinating to think about how you and the people who follow you all will interpret the history that we're living through right now. Uh, But I do want to take a crack at something that Joe Crispino, when when we first talked about doing this show, um, and said, how do we put what's going on with Trump and Biden right now in some sort of historical context so that our listeners don't feel like they're living in an unprecedented uh, uh, political Uh, time. And your first thought was that the transition from Herbert Hoover to the first term of Franklin Delano Roosevelt was one of the most contentious, difficult, and consequential for the country. But here's what we're going to do. Got to get a break out of the way. And when we come back, we'll take a couple minutes to talk about why that transition is worthy of our consideration as we Uh, face tomorrow when Joe Biden takes power. Joe Crispino, why was the transition from Hoover to FDR uh, so consequential that uh, we want to talk about it in light of the difficult transition we're seeing between Trump and Biden? Two reasons. One, because of the depression
4: and the fact that from the time of the election in November to the inauguration of of Roosevelt in March. And Roosevelt was the last president to take office under the old pre-20th Amendment uh, schedule. Uh, The the depression, which had been severe from 1929 forward, uh, takes a turn for the worse. Uh, But also because of how different the two presidents were and how different the two approaches were to the problem of the Depression. Hoover, throughout his presidency, had, and, and, and we forget this, but Hoover did a lot. I mean, Hoover didn't just sit on his hands and do nothing. He did propose a lot of things to try to, ease you know, so but he had clear boundaries beyond which he would not go. He didn't want to give direct you know, payments to hurting Americans. He wanted to su- support the banking system and, and these kinds of things. Um, but Hoover kept on thinking it was right around the corner. Recovery was right around the corner. We're going to pull out of this thing. And so when he loses the election to Roosevelt, he continues to try to propose policies and he continues to try to 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 bring Roosevelt in to to kind of give credence to his policies. And he wants to, you know, he believes that the that recovery is around the corner, so he wants to make sure that, you know, he wants Roosevelt to say something publicly about committing to balanced budgets, say. And Roosevelt didn't want to do that, because Roosevelt didn't think that the recovery was right around the corner, you know? And so it became very contentious over those months uh, between the two men. Um, Nobody likes to lose. Hoover was still, you know, sore over losing. But as he continues in in this kind of um, awkward way to try to loop Roosevelt in to, 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 to giving... Um, to going along with different uh, parts of his policies, it becomes very contentious and it kind of culminates in this tea that, uh, that uh, Hoover invites Roosevelt over to tea the, the afternoon before the inauguration and it, and it turns into another argument, and, and, and Roosevelt's son almost gets into a fist fight with some of uh, Hoover's people. I mean, it was, it was very contentious, but you can see in the nature, it wasn't just personal, it was also ideological. Because uh, there's a wonderful book that, that was written about this a couple of years ago called, called Winter War by Eric Roshway. And, um, and, he, and he sees this as a kind of an important ideological moment in the origins of modern conservatism and modern liberalism. Because he believes that, that Roosevelt's policies were much more cohesively and coherently a liberal set of solutions to fundamental economic problems. Than previous historians have oftentimes given them credit for. So it's a it's a it's a wonderful example of a very contentious uh, and, and very formative uh, transition. Uh,
1: Fred, there is a description of the two of them riding uh, to the Capitol for the inauguration, sharing a carriage covered in a blanket that they were sharing, but not saying a word to one another the entire ride over. But what I think is particularly interesting about that story today is we know that Roosevelt went on to have an enormously successful uh, tenure in the White House, um, was able to pass some of the most successful uh, social justice programs uh, that the country had ever seen, did not deal with pervasive problems of, you know, racial injustice and that sort of thing. Nevertheless, brought the country out of the Depression and moved us forward, yes?
2: Yeah, and so um, when we began this section to talk about the listeners who are out there who are concerned about this transition of power, it has happened happened before. And so, you know, this may hold some promise. Certainly no guarantee. Um, Things are not guaranteed how things will play out. But at least some promise uh, that that things could play out, and there could be a peaceful, not just a peaceful transition of power, but also a successful administration that emerges out of the wake of this, this kind of crisis.
1: Are you hopeful, Fred?
2: I'm. I'm hopeful. Yeah, I'm. I'm hopeful. For, and and good. I think the key is, I think the key is science. Um, if science can begin to win the day and truth can begin to win the day, and, and uh, then uh, that, that should shape things around the pandemic. People are afraid. People are afraid to go out. People are afraid to even be close to loved ones because of the pandemic. And, and I think we have an administration that's coming into, into power that's taking that seriously, not just the, the economic, but the, per- the personal consequences of this pan, pandemic and, and they'll, they will they tend to that as a uh, principle, uh, their, their key priority. And, and once that happens, I think you'll have a greater level of confidence among people um, and we can begin to uh, a, a long process of healing.
1: So Michelle, uh, James Buchanan leaves President Lincoln with an incredibly difficult crisis, the secession of seven states, the civil war uh, uh, beginning, um, and uh, and yet Lincoln, uh, during his tenure, his one term in office, is able to win the war, is it, it starts the process, however haltingly, to free the slaves, and puts the country in better shape than it had been. Herbert Hoover leaves uh, FDR with difficult. Challenges to solve. And as we just said, FDR is able to end the depression and move the country forward. So, all that said, we can't look at what's happening right now and feel despair just because this is a very fractious transition. Is that a fair statement?
3: Um, Yes. (laughs) I mean, I think I still have some worries. And I was thinking about when when Joe was talking, um, one of the reasons why. Roosevelt was able to accomplish so much in that first 100 days. That flurry of legislation was in part because it, it, it felt as though there, were, there was a pretty strong consensus behind him. Um, he had a Congress supporting him, and it's unlikely that he would have been able to, you know, foster the passage of really transformative legislation, the National Recovery Act, um, and, and so, and, and direct relief to Americans, and and. What concerns me a little bit now is that it's not so clear that we're, we've really turned a corner. I'm, I mean, the, the Democrats control Congress, but only just barely. And, and it was a close election this past one. It was much closer than the one that put Roosevelt in the office in '33.
4: If I could just chime in. Yeah, I mean, Michelle's absolutely right. I mean, Roosevelt benefited from huge majorities in both the, the House and the Senate when he was passing. And you're going to get some calls, uh, uh, Bill, from some of your listeners in, by saying that Roosevelt ended the Depression, that the New Deal ended the Depression. It's generally not seen as that, that being the case. The, the World War II and the mobilization for World War II was the thing that allowed for the kind of massive Keynesian injection. Into the economy that ultimately ended the, the, the New Deal uh, – that uh, ultimately ended the Depression. The New Deal budgets were nowhere near enough. Even though it was historic spending for the time, uh, it was nowhere near enough to, to provide the kind of Keynesian injection to the economy to really end the Depression. That didn't really happen until the mobilization for World War II. Uh, but, but you know, um, Roosevelt should get credit for, 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 you know, for moving the ball down that path,
1: certainly. Okay, I appreciate your correcting me. Um, I got, I just got tomorrow. I think I just got a D plus on my paper on Roosevelt <laughs> and the Depression from from Professor Crispino. You, you bring on the historian. You are we going
0: to
4: have uh, to be precise here.
1: Bill. Come on. <laughs> all right, listen. I f- first of all, thank you for this terrific conversation. Um, it was it was great to hear all of you weigh in on on history, on your feelings about where we're headed as a country, what you do as historians as you start to interpret the current history of our country. Uh, So I'm very grateful to all of you for uh, being with us today. Hey, before we leave you, tomorrow, you know we've started this little thing called Small Comforts, where we are asking our listeners to tell us what are the little things that bring them joy and pleasure. We have a phone number that people can call to share some of them with us. It's 404-685-2426. And many of you are calling. And before we leave you, I want to play just at least... Uh, One of them. I want to, can we, uh, Sam, play, let's play Dave, who sent us his message about what he's taking comfort uh, in, in very difficult times.
2: Hi, Dave here. Uh, Well, my pets don't know what the politics are. They don't care, but they're great comfort and... This next spring, I'm going to have the biggest flower gardens I've ever had with all the plants I've planted uh, during the fall election cycle. So that's going to be great for me.
1: So in difficult times, Dave has a flower garden and dogs who don't care about politics. We want to keep playing some of your favorites. And we also invite you to you can email them to me at uh, my email address, bnigat at gpb.org. You can tweet them to politicsgpb. Um, And we'll find time on the show to play more of these and read more of what you've had to say in the days ahead. That's it for our show today. We're back again uh, tomorrow with another Political Rewind. Until then, I'm Bill Nigat. Stay, please take care, stay healthy, and wear a mask. Take care, everybody.